All right. All right, you guys. Great to see everybody this morning. Um, so before, so youth group, you guys are in today. Bless your hearts. The Lord has some special stuff for you, youth group. But uh, elementary kids, so preschool through fifth grade, you guys can be dismissed at this point. I have a couple announcements that they're going to let me do this morning special. Um, the first of which is kind of a neat opportunity um, so KFAX 1100 AM is kind of the large Christian talk radio station uh, here in the area. And we are going to be, this coming week, we're going to be their featured church of the week. Yes. Ooh. Ah. Now, I don't think the bar is terribly high to be that. I think you just sort of have to be breathing and you can be the church of the week if you agreed to it. But we're really excited about what the Lord could do um, with this. So I think beginning tomorrow, there'll be different um, promotional spots that they play throughout the course of the week, just talking about Calvary Chapel Mountain View and where we meet and when we meet and how people can get involved in the ministry here. On uh, Thursday at 5 p.m. on that Craig Roberts Lifeline program, um, I recorded an interview with Craig Roberts that we're gonna do. They promised that in post they could make me sound smart. So we're trusting that by the time it gets on the air, it's gonna sound good. So that's Thursday night at five. And then a week from today on Sunday at noon, they replay the interview and they play uh, one of our recent uh, Sunday sermons. So uh, just an opportunity, again, there's lots of people that listen to Christian radio that aren't necessarily involved in a local church. And so really the heart uh, behind this for KFAX is to get people plugged into church fellowships. And so this is a great uh, opportunity uh, to do that. And again, whether it's here or somewhere else, we want every Christian to be plugged into a body of local believers where they can be encouraged and ministered to. And so, so pray for that this week for all these little spots and for that interview on Thursday and then for, um, for the broadcast of that teaching on, uh, on Sunday. Um, the next announcement is super exciting. I'm about a year behind on this announcement, but I wanted to finally announce today a trip to Israel that we are planning for uh, January of next year. So January of 2024, January 15 through 25, um, Calvary Chapel Mountain View, we're hosting a, uh, a tour of Israel. Uh, if you've never been to Israel, you want to go to Israel. Pastor Chuck would always say that a trip to Israel is worth a year in Bible college. There's nothing like being there and actually visiting these places where these events happened uh, seeing where Jesus walked, you just get a context for the scriptures that's very difficult to get outside of actually uh, going there. And I will say one of the things that has kept me sort of dragging my feet on this is just that the cost of going to Israel has skyrocketed. I, I led, I think, four or five tours to Israel way back in the 2000s or or whatever we would call that, different century or different millennia, whatever it was. Anyway, it was a while ago. Um, and since then, uh, the cost of going has just become prohibitive, so much so that most of the prices that I was seeing were in the $4,700, $5,000 per person um, kind of, a, a, of a, a neighborhood. So we've been working hard to actually uh, find ourselves uh, a, a tour operator, a great itinerary, and uh, frankly, a time of year 
where we could go and really get that cost down. Now, one of the nice things about January is that it's a lot cheaper to travel in January. One of the things I love about leading a tour in January, uh, most people go to Israel in the spring. They go in April or they go in late March. Um, and the problem with that is it gets very crowded. And it's like a crowded day at Disneyland where you want to go on 20 rides and you only get on two of them. So in Israel, you pull up to one of these sites and all of a sudden you are the 10th the bus waiting to get into that site. So in January, the, the crowds are at about 50%, which is most attractive uh, to me. The temperatures are a little bit cooler uh, in January, but not too cold. We might get a rain shower. That could happen. So umbrellas will be, uh, will be in order. Um, but we've been able for a 10-day trip to get the cost down to 33.25 per person, um, which is a remarkable price. So that's inclusive of airfare. That's all the hotels. It's a, a private tour bus for our group. It's uh, you know hotel buffets for breakfasts and dinners. Um, some of the lunches are on our own, although there's a few lunches that are uh, that are special. So. Um, it's going to be uh, an exciting time. As I said, 10 days, you know, we fly overnight that first day into Tel Aviv and then make our way immediately down to the very southern tip of the country. So down into Beersheba and the, the Negev, the desert area there, really to just start walking in the footsteps of the patriarchs um, down there. Um, the next day, we tour exclusively in the south. We hit the Valley of Elah, where David and Goliath fight. We, uh, we, we see Lachish, which is one of the major cities at the time. Uh, we see Masada that very first day. And we end our day, that first day, at the Dead Sea, at, uh, at a beautiful hotel there, right on the coast of the Dead Sea. And we'll have an opportunity, actually, to float in the Dead Sea. You can't really swim in the Dead Sea, but you float in the Dead Sea. Um, so we'll do that. The next day we start, we get to see, I think, En Gedi that day, and then we head up kind of uh, toward the coast, up until the, kind of the coastal part of the Galilee, where we'll visit Caesarea, we visit uh, Mount Carmel, we visit Megiddo, and have a view, of course, of the valley of Armageddon. Um, we're going to see, we'll, you know, we'll see Nazareth, we'll see actually a site we're going to talk about in our text this morning, and we end up arriving right there at the Sea of Galilee at our hotel in Tiberias. The next day is spent exclusively there at the Sea of Galilee, where we'll take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, we'll visit the Mount of Beatitudes, um, we'll visit the, the place where Peter was restored right there on the Sea of Galilee, uh, we're going to visit um, Magdala. Um, the next day, we head kind of to the north of the, the Sea of Galilee, and we visit some fascinating sites, uh, Tel Dan up there in the north. We drive through the Golan. Um, we visit Caesarea Philippi, you know, the gates of hell right there. Um, we also will visit uh, Gadara, which we saw just a couple uh, weeks ago where the demoniac met Jesus after he'd crossed uh, the sea. Um, the following day, we start to make our, uh, our descent, if you will, from the Galilee down the Jordan River Valley, finally to Jerusalem. We, on that day, we'll visit Gideon Springs, where, remember, in, in the book of Judges, where Gideon assembled his, uh, his army. We visit uh, Bet Shane, which is a fantastic example of kind of a first century 
uh, Roman city there that's a, a super well-preserved archeological site. We'll also have an opportunity to be baptized in the Jordan River at the site where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist there in the Jordan River. Um, and we, we finished that day with the view of shepherd's fields outside of Bethlehem and finally arriving uh, in Jerusalem uh, where we spend a total of three full days of touring um, to see everything from the Mount of Olives down the Palm Sunday Road. We visit the Muslim quarter. We visit the Christian quarter. We, of course, visit uh, the Temple Mount. We visit... Uh, the, the base of the, the Western Wall, and we see the original foundation stones of, uh, of the Temple Mount. We'll visit the Southern Steps, where Jesus said not one of these stones will be left, uh, will be left standing. Um, and then, of course, we finish our visit with a trip to Golgotha, and then uh, the empty tomb there uh, in the garden. So... Um, Anyway, a fantastic trip. I hope that you will consider coming along with us. Um, I have uh, some of these cool brochures that I'll have available for anybody who's interested. Uh, you can grab one from me after church. I think it's a, you know, a $300 deposit secures you a spot. And then you can make payments to the tour company between now and I think the final payment is due uh, in October. Of course, you're responsible for your own passport and these kinds of things. Um, I have invited a couple of other Calvary Chapel churches just so we can get the 40 people. Now, if we get 40 people from our church, I'll just fire those other churches. But we've extended the trip to um, my pastor, Pastor Dave Johnston, and his fellowship down at Calvary Chapel Canal Valley. Uh, as well, the Calvary Chapel out in Half Moon Bay has some folks that they think might want to come. And then um, a great uh, dear friend of mine, a great brother, Pastor Dave Campbell, who pastors down at Calvary Chapel in Capitola, um, will have some of them. They're all uh, like-minded brothers. They have very like-minded churches uh, to our fantastic church. So anyway, super excited. So if you're able to come, um, please do grab one of, these, uh, one of these brochures. We would love to have as many of you come along with us as, uh, as is possible. Amen? Amen. So let's, uh, let's pray and let's just, we are going to get into our text today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 and let's just ask the Lord to really bless, uh, bless his word for us this morning. So Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for all of the exciting things that are happening here, Lord, in our fellowship, we do pray your blessing on this KFAX opportunity to be the church of the week this week. Lord, we pray that fruit would come from that, Lord, and that it would be an opportunity for us to reach out into the community and to minister to, um, to those, Lord, who are uh, searching, Lord, or who simply need to hear uh, your word taught, Lord. Um, Father, we do pray as well for this opportunity for the trip to Israel, and I thank you, Lord, for working out all the details of this, Lord, and for helping us to assemble uh, what I think is a great itinerary, um, Father. And I do pray um, that anyone who is interested in coming, Lord, that you would just make that possible for them to, uh, to be part of this tour. And so, Father, we pray for that, and we just entrust that whole thing uh, into your hands, Lord. And we do pray as we go to your word this morning, Lord, this is why we gather. Lord, we gather to exalt your name in worship. Lord, we gather to uh, just to be ministered to through your word, Lord. And we pray that your spirit would speak to us this morning. 
Lord, we pray as we do each and every week that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, and that, um, that we'd be open to, uh, to receive that. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you and we pray your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the spirit reminded me as I was praying that I completely blew that whole Israel uh, announcement because what I failed to tell you is that at each of those sites, we don't just visit the site, but at the sites we sit and we open the Bible to the biblical text that happened at that site, and we actually teach right through the biblical text. Um, that to me is the highlight, that's what really distinguishes this kind of a tour from uh, just a, a sightseeing tour, is that our goal is really to connect these biblical texts with the actual area. And there's, there's nothing like it to be able to see the actual place where it happened and it, it starts, the Bible starts to come alive in a way that, um, that it didn't. So, so I wanted to make sure to mention that. Mark chapter six today, we're gonna look just at the first six verses actually of this chapter. We're gonna jump right back in where we left off. Does anybody need a Bible today if you don't have one? You might want to have one to make sure I'm not making stuff up, but just raise your hands and we'll get a Bible brought to you. But we're going we're gonna to jump in where we left off last time. Um, remember right after those incredible stories, remember the healing of the woman with the issue of blood and the, the raising of Jairus's daughter from the dead. And they, they were those two very powerful, those kind of interwoven accounts of these people who were really driven to Jesus in their desperation, right? They were driven to Jesus when life just got too big. And they were such great stories of faith and, and the, the response of Jesus to that faith. And yet now as we continue on this morning and we start out and we're gonna to start to work our way through chapter six, what we're gonna to begin to see is really the unfolding of unbelief. And we're going to see that today in, in the acquaintances of Jesus. And then later in the chapter, we're going to see it in his adversaries. And eventually, we're going to see it even in his own disciples. And, you know, chronologically speaking, we're, we're kind of into now what is probably the final year of Jesus' ministry, right? What we've called the year of opposition, and we're going to see that that opposition is going to start to build and build, of course, as we get closer and closer to the cross. But what we're going to see today is that that opposition, as it very often does maybe in our own lives, but that opposition really begins right there at home. And these first six verses detail the rejection of the Lord Jesus by his hometown of Nazareth a second time, right? So our first section, it starts right out, it's the rejection by Nazareth again of Jesus. And, and these verses, I think, it's an account, this particular incident that starts out this chapter here, to me, it is one of the saddest incidents in the entire life of Jesus. And yet I think, I hope we're gonna see that it's so very valuable for each one of us. So jumping in, let's read together in verse one. Remember, we've just finished these two faith-filled events there at Capernaum, which we'll visit 
when we go, right there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Then it says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. Now, admittedly, the, the, the translation here in this version is not the best, where it said that he came to his own country, because it sort of makes it sound, first of all, like Jesus left Israel, or that he wasn't from Israel, but he didn't, and he was. So better translations simply say that he went to his hometown, or he went on from there, and he came to his hometown. And the idea simply is that they left Capernaum, and they made what would have been a 40-mile walk kind of to the southwest to Nazareth, where Jesus had grown up. Of course, having been born in Bethlehem, as the scriptures prophesied that he would. Now, you'll remember, this is now the second time, as Mark records, that Jesus has ministered here in Nazareth since he began his public ministry. And remember back immediately following his baptism by John the Baptist and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the temptation there in the wilderness. We remember that Jesus made this move directly back up into this northern region from that area down there around Jerusalem. And he went immediately up here to Nazareth and he revealed himself as the promised Messiah to them first. Again, just like the scriptures predicted and prophesied that he would. You remember that wonderful scene. Luke records it for us so well. It's that first time that Jesus teaches there in the local synagogue. In Luke chapter 4, it says that he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. It says, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine that, right? And their response to his sharing of the scripture and then this this assertion that he makes, remember their response to that was that they attempted really to end his ministry right at the beginning of his ministry. Remember they tried to kind of run him right off of a cliff that overlooks Nazareth. It's called Mount Precipice. Again, it's one of the sites that we'll visit. It says that all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. It says, but then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now here, amazingly, Jesus goes back again to these very same people, these same people who tried to throw him off of a cliff, and this time it says that he brings his disciples, and he's going to try yet one more time to reach out to these people and to this town, which had been his home for the 30 years of his entire life before he began this public ministry. But at this point, now when he comes back, 
remember, everyone everywhere knows all about him. We've talked about the fact that the news of all he's done, of doing all of these things that Isaiah said that the Messiah would do, right? All the healings and the deliverance and the teachings and all these crowds up there in the Galilee, all these crowds pressing in on him over the course of these last two and a half plus years. So Jesus kind of brings all of that now back with him. And Mark tells us in verse two that when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now I want to pause really quickly. Usually we stop and we point out something significant that we need to note that we see in the text. But this time I actually want to pause here for just a moment to point out something that we actually don't see in the text. Right? This thing that we've been seeing everywhere Jesus is ministering, anywhere through the Galilee, what do we read about? We read about multitudes that are thronging him. We read about these tremendous crowds that are gathered around him. And the sad thing in all of this, again, is that here in Nazareth, there is no mention of any crowd of any kind. Mark has been so faithful to mention it every other time. And yet here, all he mentions is that his disciples were with him. Now think about this. Here he is now, nearly three years into his public ministry. As we said, everybody knows about him. Everybody knows about his teachings and his miracles. His fame, he's famous not only in Israel, but his fame has spread to surrounding nations. And we would have thought that the city of Nazareth, they should have thrown like a, like a ticker tape parade for him or something like that. Right, because here is, here's the local boy who's done good, right? And he's done very good, especially having come out of a city. Remember, Nathaniel was the first one to say it. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, Nazareth was not a city with a good reputation, and yet something good had indeed come out of Nazareth. And he just came back to Nazareth. And yet we see that there's absolutely none of that. There's no warm welcome when he comes back to the city. But instead, we just sort of float right into this regular Sabbath service here in the synagogue. At least they're going to allow Jesus to be the guest speaker. But what we're about to see is this is going to be anything but a regular kind of Sabbath service. Look again in verse 2. When the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? So they were astonished when they heard him teach, right? There was this sense of wonder and this sense of amazement. I mean, this would have been one of these jaw-dropping experiences when they just hear his, his deep insights into the human condition, his deep insights into the word of God. And they knew that this wasn't just any ordinary teaching by an ordinary man. Remember way back in chapter 1, what they had said when they heard him teach the first time. It said they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. 
Remember we said Jesus didn't kind of just quote all of the, the, the going human knowledge of the day. He wasn't just quoting what the other rabbis said about the passage. That was kind of customary. But when Jesus would open up the scriptures, he would tell them with authority what the scriptures actually meant. Over and over, right, we see Matthew record where Jesus will say, you have heard that it was said, and he'll say, but I say to you, right? And we see Jesus really explain what the law of Moses was intended to do, what the law of Moses was intended to be in human history, or whatever it was he was discussing from the word of God. And they knew, it says here, they knew that the miracles he was doing here and all around Israel, they knew that the miracles were simply to testify to the truth of what he was teaching. And if we're honest about it, right, the only honest conclusion that could have come from what they're hearing and from what they're seeing, the only honest conclusion is the very thing he had told them three years earlier that he was nothing less than the promised Jewish Messiah of Israel and the Son of God. And here he comes back to them in his grace just one final time before the cross, which he knows is looming large on his horizon, but he comes back in his grace to reveal this to them again, really to give them the opportunity to allow them to receive him differently than they had years earlier, right? So that would have been the honest conclusion that they could have come to, but instead look at their objection. Look at their reaction in verse three. They say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Yes, Mary did have other children, it says right here in the Bible. And they say, and are not his sisters here with us? It says, so they were offended at him, right? Maybe your translation says they were suspicious of him or that they were deeply offended and they refused to believe in him. Some of them might say that they were stumbled at him, right? These hometown Nazareth neighbors of Jesus, they knew just a little bit too much about Jesus to accept Jesus or so they thought. And I think that what's ironic is they actually, they knew little enough about him to think that they knew everything about him. So what happens is they end up jumping to all of the wrong conclusions about him, right? They knew Jesus only as the carpenter or as the son of a woman, frankly, who had kind of a questionable reputation. You know, when they refer to him as being the son of Mary, this is not some sort of a, an insight that's acknowledging his unique virgin birth, right? This was a straight insult. Because in that culture, one was always identified as being the son of your father. Whether or not that father was living or dead, which we assume perhaps Joseph by this point, may have passed away. So by calling Jesus the son of Mary, what these people are actually saying is, we don't even really know who this guy's father is. 
So they're essentially accusing him of being illegitimate. And when they call him the carpenter, this, by the way, was also not a compliment. No offense to any carpenters who are here with us today. But what this was, was this was a way of pointing out that they knew that Jesus had no formal theological training. Right? They knew that he was never a formal disciple of any rabbi, much less one of the prominent named rabbis down in Jerusalem. So here's Jesus, and he comes in with this astonishing, this mind-blowing message, and what these people couldn't get past wasn't even what he was teaching, wasn't even where did he get all this heavenly revelation into the scriptures. What they couldn't get past is that he had this kind of revelation, he had this deep understanding, and he somehow had it without going to any of the rabbinical religious schools down in Jerusalem. What they couldn't get past is that he hadn't been to what we would call seminary. He never went to school for this, right? And so immediately, it was just easier for them to dismiss his teaching and to dismiss him rather than having to kind of re-examine their own sort of pre-existing ideas about what it is that actually qualifies someone to handle the things of God. Not realizing that this teaching was coming from what is the greatest qualification that anyone could possibly have, right, which he uniquely possessed, and that's that this teaching was coming from the very thing that they rejected, which is that he was the Messiah of Israel. He was the very Son of God standing there in the flesh before them. And that he was uniquely qualified and equipped by God for this ministry, even through his very humble beginnings as a carpenter. Now, this carpenter thing stuck, right? And down throughout the centuries, some have thought and still maintained that the fact that Jesus worked as a carpenter somehow continued to discredit his message and his ministry. There's a, a neat account. Neat, an interesting account, right, from church history from ancient Rome during what was this wave of terrible persecution that came against Christians around 360 AD under Emperor Julian, right? He was called Julian the Apostate. He was the only Roman emperor after Constantine who rejected Christianity. But during that time, as these Christians were being persecuted, there was a philosopher apparently who was mocking one of these Christians who was imprisoned and probably awaiting uh, to be put to death. And this philosopher mocked. He said, what do you think the carpenter's son is doing right now? And the Christian very wisely answered. He said, he's probably building a coffin for Julian." Right. Now, I don't think it's by accident at all that Jesus didn't spend his childhood in a rabbinical school or that he didn't spend his childhood training for the priesthood. And in fact, you think about all the places that God the Father could have invested these 30 years of this short 33 years that Jesus would be alive. 30 years here in preparation to represent heaven on earth and to represent God the Father and to teach the word of God. And you would have thought, 
right? That the best place that that preparation could happen was in Jerusalem, right? We would probably come to the same conclusion as the people in Nazareth. And yet what God does is he takes and he says, you know what? I'm going to make a key part of this preparation of my son. I'm going to make him a carpenter. And I'm going to put him in a position in the city where he is going to have to interact with every different kind of human being imaginable. And I'm going to have him do this. I'm going to place him in one of the roughest cities of all Israel at the time. Again, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I don't doubt that part of this was in order that no one who would ever then follow in the footsteps of Jesus, right, in the coming history of the church, no one would ever be able to despise any man or woman in the body of Christ in whom God calls to a position of leadership or puts in a position of influence as he calls them to this ministry right out of obscurity, right, basically calls them right out of the carpenter shop. And as we look around, what we see is that God often does use people who have no formal kind of religious education. And yet he uses people that are deep in the things of God. He uses people that are deep in the word of God and that are filled with the spirit of God. People who simply love God and have fully surrendered themselves to God. You think about Charles Spurgeon, right? D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, G. Campbell Morgan, Martin Lloyd-Jones, right? Smith Wigglesworth, A.W. Tozier, right? These names that just jump off the pages of modern church history, and none of them had any formal seminary training. Not to mention... Right, a little closer in our own family of the Calvary Chapel churches, right? We just saw it in the Jesus Revolution. Many, if not most, especially of that first generation of Calvary Chapel pastors who now pastor these huge ministries, but all of them started out for the most part as troubled teens who were simply searching for truth. You think about the disciples who then became the apostles, right? We've said it before, a bunch of fishermen, some zealots, and a tax collector, none of them with any religious education except later for Saul, who became Paul. Now, Saul indeed was a very learned rabbi. He was a religious scholar. He was a rising star in Judaism, but what did God have to do? Well, the Lord had to send him away to the desert all by himself for three years after he saved him, but before he could use him in order to reteach him everything that he thought he knew. And then Paul spent another 10 years in full-time tent making as God prepared him for that ministry that he had for him. Now, this is not at all to disparage a Bible college education. I am all for it at the right Bible college, right? A Bible college where you're actually gonna learn the Bible, right? But this is to point out that what prepares us to serve the Lord is not the time that we spend in the classroom, it's the time that we spend with the Lord, right? Amen, right? 
Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, remember, they get arrested. They get hauled out in front of the Sanhedrin. And what does Luke say? He says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized what? That they had been with Jesus. That's what prepares us. Right? That's what prepares us. It's the time that we spend with Jesus as the Lord pours his spirit and he pours his insight and he pours that revelation of the word. He pours all of that into us so that then it can flow out of us. And I believe that if Jesus had come from some kind of a religious institution as his background, well, we would probably automatically do what we already probably fight against doing in our pride and our culture, and that's to assume that that is the highest way or maybe even the only way to be prepared for a life of ministry. But the truth is, you guys, the Lord has a lot of different ways of preparing us for his calling. I can look back in my own life. I didn't go to Bible college. I wish that I had. Right? You guys would probably be better off for it, but I didn't. But I can look back at this point, and I can see that everything I did, every job I had, all of the secular education that I got, even the godless industry that I worked in for so many years before becoming a Christian, I now see the way that the Lord redeemed every bit of it and the way that he sanctified it, and the way that he has used it and continues to use it for his purposes. And I actually think that it's wonderful and it's fitting to think that Jesus, of all the professions that he could have been, I think it's wonderfully fitting that God chose him to be a carpenter, right? God is a builder, and he knows how to build beautiful things into our lives, and he knows how to build beautiful things out of each of our lives. He knows how to finish the job that he started. Think about it. As a carpenter, Jesus knew that there's a lot of beautiful potential in this big, dumb log, right? That's right in front of him, right? He learned to work and he learned that things take time to build something beautiful. And he also learned that sometimes the finest things are most often made from the hardest wood, Right? And that's great news for some of us who tend to be a little bit hard-headed. Right? So all of that is simply to encourage you with this. The next time the enemy tells you, when he starts to whisper in your ear, you're not ready, right? or you're not qualified, or your background isn't right, or your training isn't right, here's the truth. It's the Lord Jesus that's going to make you right for whatever it is he's calling you to do. But be prepared. Because as we're going to see now in our text, and as so many of you I know know personally, it's very often those who think they know us best who will never accept what the Lord has done in us and what the Lord is trying to do through us. Look at verse 4. So we've got those at Nazareth who are rejecting Jesus again for the second time. It says, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and is in his own house. Now this may sound a bit familiar, and it should, because he's reminding them of exactly what it was he said to them the first time he came to them. 
right? This had become kind of a Jewish proverb. It was based on, on some things that Jeremiah the prophet had said. And what they remind us is that Jesus absolutely could accept that this rejection that was going to come from his friends, that was just the price that a faithful prophet had to pay. Although we can only imagine on a human level how this must have hurt him to be rejected a second time. Right? Like, what do I have to do? Right? You've heard about all the things that I did. You've heard about the healings. You've heard about the teachings. What do I have to do to have you accept me? You know, as, as we look at this entire thing, the thing that stumbled his Nazareth neighbors the most in terms of accepting the ministry of Jesus is we would simply say was their familiarity with Jesus. Right? They rejected him because he was too familiar to them. Right? It's this dangerous familiarity with Jesus. And I know we've talked about this before, but I think this is one of the great challenges that people face growing up here in the United States, although it's getting less and less, but it's still there. Again, this Christian heritage that we have in our country. Or you think about kids that grow up in Christian homes. Don't get me wrong, we want all kids to grow up in Christian homes. But so often, it's Christian kids who will reject Jesus and run instead after every kind of spiritual and philosophical nonsense, and they'll run into that stuff or toward that stuff just as soon as they get out of the house. And sometimes it's because they look at Jesus and they think, well, you know what, Jesus is just too familiar. I've heard about him all my life. You know, my whole life has been centered all around him. Everybody I know follows after him. And so then they get into that time of life when there's that tendency kind of want to make your own path. You want to be thought of as something different. And it's that familiarity with Jesus that stumbles them. It's like that old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah, or we think about, the, you know, just because we've grown up maybe sitting in rooms like this or, you know, we've sung the songs and we've been taught the Bible stories and we think we know him simply by virtue of all that, but we may not know anything about him at all until it comes to that point of surrender of our life to him out of our own desperation. Right? And we make him our Lord and we make him our Savior. And then there's that real commitment on a personal level to really follow after him. But all of that comes as a result of that spiritual rebirth. And, and can I just say, as someone who did exactly this, this is not the best way to do it. Right? To waste all of that time and to waste all of those years just searching hard after sin only to end up desperate and broken because we thought that Jesus was too familiar. You know, where somebody says, you know, I thought that I knew him and I went out and I went on this quest or this search and I realized that I knew nothing about him and what I realized is that the meaning of life and the purpose of life had been sitting there right under my nose the entire time. But it takes us getting to that crisis point to realize that and then we realize that we have just missed out. I got saved at 30 years old. And I think about 30 wasted years of all that Jesus wanted to be in my life. 
Now, he's redeemed all of those years. And he has, you know, given back those years that the locusts have eaten. But to think about the wasted time, because we thought we were the ones somehow who were going to stand and we were going to decide whether or not Jesus was worthy of our affection and our devotion. There's a great story that's sometimes told, probably never really happened, but told about a tourist who was visiting an art gallery, maybe the Louvre, right, in Paris. And they wanted to see everything there in the gallery, so they kind of just flit from picture to picture to picture, glancing at every picture, but not really even noticing what was actually in the frames. And then as this person left the museum, they said to one of the guards, well, I didn't really see anything very special in here. And the guard replied back and said, my friend, it's not the pictures that are on trial here. It's the visitors. And it's so true, right? If you look at a Rembrandt or if you look at a Monet and you say, well, I don't see anything very special about that. Well, all it shows is your great ignorance concerning great art. And in the same way, for so many people who say, you know, we don't see anything so special about Jesus, right? He's just a carpenter. You know, we know his family. All that shows is their great ignorance concerning the greatest figure in all of human history. And I think even for us as Christians, right, we can be in danger of making the same mistake because we kind of take for granted his, his proximity to us. You know, yes, he lives inside of us. Yes, the Bible says he will never leave or forsake us. Yes, he's always available to us. Yes, he is the most faithful friend to us, but he is God nonetheless. And as God, he has the right to our time and to our money and to our abilities and to our energies and to our lives and to our hearts. As God, Jesus has the right to everything that we are. We are not the ones who judge Jesus, right? Whether he's worthy of our lives. He's the one who judges us because he is worthy of our lives. Now, of course, there, there's another whole aspect I think of important application for this part of the passage, and I know this is going to hit home for some of you. Here as we, we watch Jesus being rejected by these very people he grew up with, and that is the fact that it is difficult, especially so often in a, in a family dynamic, it's so often very difficult for people to receive truth, especially, I think, spiritual truth. It's difficult to receive that from someone who is close to us. And so often it takes some stranger, right, somebody coming in out of left field to come in and say the very same thing before we'll actually receive it. And I know that every parent in the room understands this. Amen, parents? And I think that lots of husbands in this room might also understand this all too well. I'm not going to mention any names. But there have been more times than I, had think, and I can count when I have been trying to encourage my sweet wife in some way, and it's just not helping at all. And it seems like I'm actually making things worse, which I probably am. And then what'll happen is she'll go get on the phone with one of her close girlfriends. And she will come back into the room, and it is like the clouds have parted, 
and the sun is shining, and she'll say something to me like, oh, you will never believe what Kelly, or whoever it was, what Kelly just said to me. She just encouraged me so much, and it made so much sense when she just said, you know, X, Y, Z to me. And I'll pause, and I'll think, wait a minute. That is exactly, actually, those are precisely the exact words that I just said to her not 15 minutes earlier. Now, as a rookie husband, I used to actually say that actually out loud. And then we'd have a whole nother problem that we were trying to deal with. But now as a more seasoned husband, I simply say something to the effect of, wow, honey, that Kelly certainly has some great insights. You know, I think that the Lord was really just speaking right through her. And I have to say that is sometimes when my sweet wife will get that sweet little smirk that she gets and she'll say, that's exactly what you told me, isn't it? And I'll just smile, right? Now, while I'm enjoying my own little pity party up here, I will say this too. Not only I know do all parents know this and husbands know this, but all your pastors know this as well. Because I know that I can stand up here week after week, year after year, saying the same things. And then so often someone will go off to a conference or they will listen to some podcast, or they'll watch some YouTube sermon, and they will come back and say, Pastor, you will never guess what I heard. It was just life-changing. And they'll, they'll tell me, and of course, it's probably what I covered the week before. And then I'll just simply say, well, bless your heart. <laughs> and I'm thinking, really, Lord? Really? Uh, but I get it, right? The truth is, I don't care where you get it as long as you're hearing from the Lord about it. Amen? And I know you get the point, but this is human nature, right? This is the way that we are wired. And very often, familiarity can be our worst enemy because it just deadens our impact. Right? We can speak it, but we end up just kind of sounding like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? <laughs> Sometimes it does take hearing somebody from the outside to say the same things. But I do think it's important, and I'm exhorting myself on this as well. I think in light of what happened here in Nazareth, right, whether I'm a child or a youth or a husband or a wife, whether I'm in a local church, it's important that we don't simply shut out the voice of God when he speaks through those who are closest to us. That we don't shut that out simply because of our familiarity with them. Because truth be told, most often they are the people who can speak most clearly into our lives. So we need to be careful that this kind of a Nazareth attitude doesn't carry into our lives as well. We need to be ready. We need to be willing to really receive that spiritual truth from whatever vessel the Lord decides to use. Because look at next what happened. As a result of their familiarity, as a result of them jumping to the wrong conclusions, as a result of their rejection, it says in verse 5, now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit 
teaching. Now this is a very, very sad scene here, right? Didn't we just see this very same thing happen as we just watched Jesus leave the region of Gadara, right? After the people there begged him to leave, right? He had just cast a legion of demons out of this man, but here they pleaded with him to leave and what did he do? He left. He left never to return to that region of the Gadarenes again. Because again, Jesus won't stay where he's not wanted. He will never force himself upon anyone. And so he leaves Nazareth now and he simply takes his ministry to these surrounding towns where no doubt they are happy to receive him just the way that every other town that we've read about except for Nazareth has been happy to receive him. And as far as we know from the revelation of the scriptures, Jesus never, ever will return to Nazareth again. It's so sad that all of these other places are just going to rejoice in him. They're going to recognize him for who he is in a way that didn't happen here in his hometown. But what I think is even more sad to me and a little more sobering, look what Mark says there in verse 5 where he mentions that because of this, Jesus could do no mighty work there. Right? Jesus could do no deep work there. Now, this doesn't mean that somehow Jesus lost his power or lost his ability to do miracles, but rather what it does mean is that in some way, his work was limited because of this climate of unbelief. There was a sense in which Jesus' power was somehow limited by the absolute disbelief of his countrymen. So it is possible that we can limit the powerful work of Jesus. And I think that this is a clear display, really, of the, what is the raw power of our own unbelief. Right? Truly believing in the Lord Jesus is an extremely powerful thing. But the raw power of a determined unbelief toward Jesus, in a sense, can be equally as powerful. And again, I think there's a sobering warning here about the sheer direction-setting power of determined unbelief. And what I mean by that is here you've got these people in Nazareth who we said they have heard his supernatural wisdom. They've witnessed his supernatural works and they simply and completely deny the facts and they deny the proof of everything they'd heard and seen, right? Because of their unbelief and this low level of faith there in Nazareth, instead of these crowds of people coming to him to be touched by him and to be made whole by him, all we have is probably just a handful of people he, who came, right? And that handful that did come, he met their needs, and then what did he do? He moved on. Very different response here than what we've seen everywhere else that he's been. So much so, look what Mark says there in verse 6. Look back. It says that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled at their unwillingness to believe that his wisdom and his power were from God. Right? in spite of all that they had experienced with him there, right? And the idea here behind that word marveled is that he was astonished. He was amazed. He wondered about it as he thought. Did you know 
that there are only two times in the gospel accounts where it says that Jesus marveled. And in both instances, it has to do with people's faith and the way that they react to him. Right? In this passage, as Mark reveals, Jesus marveled at the unbelief of these Jewish people. But then we have Luke 7 and Matthew 9, where it says that Jesus marveled again, but this time he marveled at the great faith of a Roman centurion, right? Of this Gentile man. And you Bible students, I know you all remember the story. Remember he came to Jesus asking for healing for his servant and he was so filled with confidence in Jesus' ability to simply speak the word from where he was and he knew that that man would be saved. And it says that when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So it amazed Jesus that this Gentile soldier, right, of all people, this man who was a stranger to the covenant, he had very little understanding of the scriptures at best, but that he saw what so few of the covenant people saw when they looked at Jesus, the centurion saw nothing less than the Son of God. Right? He recognized that there was this sense of divine holiness in Jesus. He recognized his own sinfulness. He knew he wasn't worthy even to be in the presence of Jesus, and that made Jesus marvel. Think about it. We never read that Jesus marveled at anything else. He didn't marvel at art or architecture or he didn't marvel at the sheer wonder of creation. He didn't marvel at human ingenuity or at human invention. He didn't marvel at the the piety of the, the Jewish religious people. He didn't marvel at the military dominance of the Roman Empire. But Jesus did marvel at faith. And there are two things that make Jesus step back and say, wow. And that's those who believe when it's not expected that they would. And those who disbelieve when there's every reason that they should. Just as he marvels here with his neighbors at Nazareth. In fact, many Bible students see in this passage that these people of Nazareth here are simply a picture for us of Israel's blindness as a whole, right? Their persistent blindness as a people, right? Jesus just marveled at their commitment to not believe. It's amazing how unbelief can respond in the face of facts and proof. So amazing that it sort of startles Jesus here. Again, they'd heard him speak, they'd watched him work, they were aware of these things, and yet they were so committed to not believing in him that it just leaves him amazed. So, of course, the question is, right, the question I think that needs to be asked for each and every one of us, you know, asked in the privacy of our own hearts and before the Lord is, would Jesus marvel at my faith or would he marvel at my unbelief, right? When he looks at you, does Jesus marvel at the sheer power of your, uh, your decided unbelief? 
at this unbelief that keeps you from fully surrendering to him despite the evidence and despite the way that he's touched your life, right? Does he, does he marvel at your absolute unwillingness to acknowledge him and the claim that he has on your life? You all know who Charles Darwin is, right? Charles Darwin, of course, an unbelieving British biologist whom Satan used powerfully to put forth his destructive theory of evolution. But Charles Darwin did make an accurate observation when he wrote, he said this about belief. He said that belief is the most complete of all distinctions between man and the lower animals. And I think he actually got that part absolutely right, didn't he? Because what it suggests is that lack of faith on man's part puts us on the same level as the animals. And when you think about it, the sin of unbelief, it must be a particularly serious sin in order for it to make Jesus marvel. And indeed it is from God's perspective. There's a very sobering admonition, I think, in Hebrews 3, where the author warns us, he says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the true and living God. So all of this to say, God takes unbelief very, very seriously, and so should we. And not just for unbelievers, but even more so, right, as believers in Jesus. Because I am sure that there are times when Jesus looks at each of us Times when maybe he looks at you. I know times when he looks at me. And he must marvel at our unbelief. Marvel with a broken heart to say, you know, there's just so much more that I could do. There's so much more that I want to do if they would just believe. If you would just step out in believing faith and really partner with me. You know, I wonder if maybe Jesus would marvel at some of us who are so privileged to have a place week after week where we can come and we can study the word of God and we can enjoy the fellowship of the saints and we can know all of the Bible stories and yet there's still no zeal for him when we walk out of here. There's still no real desire to grow in him and there's no real heart for us to put him first in our lives. I love what one author wrote. He said that such unbelief as this has immense consequences for evil. It closes the channels of grace and mercy so that only a trickle gets through to human lives in need. I don't know about you, but my life is in need. Amen? I need all of the grace I can get, and I don't need anything closing down those channels because the truth of it is that unbelief just robs us of blessing. And of course, you know that it's true. You know, Jesus comes and he offers this tremendous blessing to human lives. You know, you think about sometimes you might be talking to a friend or a family member or whoever it is, and they're just pouring out their woes and they're just telling you about their struggles and all of the difficulties that they're enduring. And you sometimes you can look at them and you can just say, well, you know what? I know the answer. I know the solution to those problems. And, you know, of course, they know that you're a Christian. 
And that's the point that they probably say, oh, don't tell me it's Jesus, right? Come on, don't give me all that Jesus stuff. Well, why not? It is Jesus, right? And the point is that if they would just believe in him or more fully trust in him, then so many of those overwhelming concerns and those big burdens and so much of that terrible misery could be alleviated because that's what Jesus does. But people who outright you know, reject him, as the saying goes, right? They're just cutting off their nose despite their face. You know, God wants to bless. But like the people here at Nazareth, they refused to be blessed the way that God wanted to bless them through his son. And he couldn't do it because of their unbelief. I don't know about you. I want everything that the Lord Jesus has for me. I want to believe him for each and every promise, the hundreds of promises that he's made to us in his word. I want Jesus to marvel at me in a good way. And I do think that when he sees us as his people, when he watches us trust in him in the midst of our extreme suffering, I think that that makes him marvel. I think that when he sees people from the roughest backgrounds with the hardest hearts, when he sees them come to him in this broken-hearted humility, I think that he marvels. I think when he sees us truly lay our lives down and lay our pride down and lay our prerogatives down for the sake of someone else, I think when he sees you or he sees me give up comfort and trade in our security for the sake of serving in the kingdom, I think those things make him marvel in a good way. I think that when we cry out to him and we ask him to increase our faith in a season maybe where we're doubting, when we want just more of what he has for us. Remember when the, the disciples cried out, it says they said to the Lord, increase our faith. I think when we do that, I think that he marvels. Remember, God can work with a little belief and he can work with no belief but what God can't work with is unbelief. Right? All he needs for us is to put our faith and our trust in him, and then he will do the rest. He is simply delighted just by our faith. I think it's significant to remember about the centurion, right? This man who had the greatest faith, Jesus said, in all Israel. He was not a disciple. He did no miracles. He planted no churches. He had no degree. He had no religious title. His spiritual resume was totally unimpressive. But this was the man that Jesus said had the greatest faith in all the land. Because he was simply a soldier who simply knew who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus was able to do. He very humbly came and asked him to do it. And then he simply trusted that he would receive exactly what he needed from Jesus. He just simply believed in Jesus. And I say that to simply say this. This is the faith that still makes Jesus marvel. So Nazareth, right, it's a warning to us because that familiarity that we have, it can breed this spectacular unbelief. But when you think about Nazareth, I want you also to think about the centurion because he is this ray of hope. He knew that there was 
power in the words of Jesus. He was absolutely confident that as the Lord spoke, that he spoke with divine power and that he spoke with divine authority and he believed in the power of every word. And that's what made Jesus marvel. Amen? Amen. So we're going to take communion this morning, first Sunday of the month, so we get to celebrate communion. And I'll invite the team to come up and to... Uh, to start to minister, but as they do, you know, when uh, after we've prayed, the communion elements are available on the tables up here, and as we start to worship, you can just simply come forward and take the bread and take the cup and take them back uh, to your seats and just spend some time with the Lord. Maybe ask the Lord, Lord, what kind of faith do I have? In what way are you marveling uh, at my faith? You know, as we as we take the, the Lord's Supper, we do this in order to remember his great sacrifice. I saw a great quote, uh, Pastor Craig Laurie said, you know, the world drinks to forget, we drink to remember. Right? So as you eat that bread and as you drink that cup, you remember the, the great sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And I just pray that it would fill us afresh with a sense of awe and a sense of wonder in, uh, in what he did. Amen? So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, Lord, the encouragement, but as well the admonition that it brings to us. Lord, I pray that each one of us would just examine our hearts, even now as we take communion, Lord, and that you would speak to each one of us, Lord, maybe there are those areas in our life where uh, our own unbelief, Lord, or our lack of faith is crowding out um, what it is that you really want to do, Lord. It's preventing those things that you want to do in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that you'd open our hearts to what you want to speak to us. And Lord, that as we take this communion, Lord, that you would bless it, Lord, that you would make the cross real and fresh to us, Lord, in a, in a powerful way this morning. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we do it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.